0: Welcome back to the Someone To Tell To Podcast. Today marks the second portion of our two-part episode with Dr. Patrick O'Malley, author of Getting Grief Right, Finding Your Story of Love in the Sorrow of Loss. When Patrick and his wife lost their infant son, his inability to move on challenged everything he was taught as a psychotherapist. What unfolded in the years to follow is a truth that may have felt but seldom heard acknowledged that our grief is not a mental illness to be cured, but part of the abiding connection with the one we've lost. Illuminated by O'Malley's own journey and those of his many clients, our conversation about his book explores how the familiar stages of grief can trivialize our experience, mislabel it as a disorder, press on to get over it, Worsen our suffering with shame and guilt when we don't. With uncommon empathy, he shows how embracing our loss and telling our story allows us to weave both our love and our sorrow fully into our lives. We hope you continue to find much meaning, understanding, substance, and comfort in this episode because grief is universal. There's an article that we often reference from New Yorker magazine, and it was published in 2010 called Good Grief. Have you ever read it?
1: I am familiar with it, yes.
0: Yeah, but there's this one phrase in there that really stood out to us where the the author wrote that perhaps the stage theory of grief caught on so quickly because it made loss sound so controllable. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah and we think that there's just been this evolution thanks to you and others other other significant voices who are giving people permission again to just sit in the messiness and the discomfort and the brokenness and the pain and not try to wipe it away or wash it away or sanitize it and um yeah just permission we use this phrase with tim a lot just permission to be human
1: yeah and and there's you know um he may have borrowed it from somewhere else, and maybe you all uh, read uh, Father Richard Rohr, uh, the, 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 yeah. the... Oh, the, yes, the we, re- we, we love him Franciscan. too. The um, Franciscan. And so I, I, I won't name him as the quoter of this because he may have quoted but I just love his, uh, and I may not say it quite the same way, but if we can open ourselves to suffering, it will transform us. If we resist that suffering, we were likely... Be a, we will likely transmit it. And I just think that is a great summary of this shift that we're talking about. Because one way of looking at this is that there's a lot, perhaps, uh, in the kind of the aggression and the hostility of, of life, some transmitted grief. Some folks who weren't able or didn't know or didn't have room or community or guide to be able to let their suffering transform us. And it, it's a careful phrase because it's never one to say, well, we need suffering in order to transform. We don't have to look for it. It's going it's to find us. It's going to happen. But I think that's my work and the work that you all are describing, is to be with people in their suffering. And many times, and without me putting those words in, any, in anyone's mouth, I will hear them talk about the transformation. Their deeper appreciation for time, their deeper appreciation for those they love, their deeper appreciation for their health, their willingness and desire to be of help to others that they didn't have before. So that doesn't happen, I don't think, unless we're able to open to our suffering and, as you say, sit in the messiness of that.
0: So, one thing we're curious about here is looking back on yourself and your own life and story when this transpired i think you had said earlier you only took a week off of work if if i remember remember correctly Mm -hmm. and we've heard that from a lot of people i remember there was a woman that we've supported who lost her son 18 years old to a car crash He was here on a friday night went out he was here at home on a friday night left and then he, he never came home and she was a school teacher she went back the next week to school because she was only given maybe three days off. And what messages would you convey to yourself to give yourself permission back then?
1: Well, I would have, uh, I think I could have taken more time off. I mean, as you probably read, you know, the, our country is one of the least responsive to bereavement leave in, in all the advanced countries in the world. And so, uh, you know, part of this isn't optional for folks. They're expected back. And as you can see in some of the bereavement policies, you end up having to prove who the loss was. And, you know, if it was your grandfather that raised you, that might not qualify because that wouldn't be considered a primary uh, relative. So we don't have a community and a culture that actually, um, I think, supports that. I think that's trying to change too. Uh, with some folks who are, who were writing about that. But what I would have said to myself, and, and about two years later, my father died, and I took two weeks off. I'd I learned how, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know when I went back to work after our son died. and uh, I couldn't sleep and I, I couldn't eat and I couldn't think straight, and I really hadn't you know, looking back on it, it was uh, I had no business doing what I did for a living in that state. So what I would have done, if, and I think I could have done it, is at least take that time off and maybe kind of work back in. I probably would have not um, taken all the, you know, right away all the hard cases I took from bereaved parents. I think I needed some space and time for that. Um, but at the same time, I'm grateful that I had that because it began to just create for me, again, this transformation and this confusion about my own life as I was seeing what was going on in their life. So I wish that we as a community had the kind of time we often need, but if we, if we stay with the individuality of grief, there are some folks who really value getting back to work and that's fine too. Uh, if, they, if they have a choice or don't have a choice, some folks really kind of prefer to, to fill their time um, because it, it's just how they're wired. One of the things we talk about in constructing your story is to know your own individual type. You're not going to necessarily greed the same if you're an extrovert or an introvert, if you're a thinker or a feeler, using kind of Myers-Briggs typology. Uh, and, and, you know, one of our big themes here is there's a universality and a great individuality about grief. And part of this is knowing yourself and knowing what you need because uh, we don't all need the same things. And also knowing that the relationship we had with that person we lost is unique because the attachment was unique. So, um, it's a great question. I I wish I'd taken more time. Uh, I did the next time I had a a deep loss, uh, and then subsequent losses. I've been much more careful with myself in terms of trying to take time to, to, to at least in those early days to be with, with the experience.
0: I'm thinking we often lead a lot of trainings, listening trainings for groups and organizations. And one of the modules we teach is about self care. And I think you're right in mentioning that not all of us grieve the same way, uh, absolutely not. And and not all of us need the same things. And I uh, apologize ahead of time for mentioning this, but I'm a big Yankees fan, New York Yankees baseball fan. And I've shared this example before in our training of uh, I think maybe in the 96 or 98 World Series, Paul O'Neill was the New York Yankees right fielder at the time and his dad died unexpectedly uh, right before one of the early games in the in the World Series, and I remember all the even the New York papers, which you know they're always haranguing players all the time, to you know give their best and be out there every day. They were giving Paul permission to take a day off to not attend in the World Series, not to not play. Even his coach Joe Torre did the same. And Paul, I remember in the interview said no, I need to be out between the white lines because that's kind of like his sanctuary. And we appreciated that, that message, because it was his, his way of of grieving uh, his dad, who was very supportive of Paul's entire career. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, this is what my dad would have wanted me to do, and this is what I need to do for myself.
1: Yeah, I think, it, you know, I've tried to be careful in this kind of, um, I guess what I would call... An anti-model approach to not get legalistic and rigid about that, you know, or otherwise I'm just I'm just selling another model, and um, and it really does come down to the individuality of it. I I you know as I kind of opened up to that when I was doing the kind of work I did early, everything had to be kind of compliant and uniform to what I thought folks needed to do, and um, it's amazing for many people, if they've got a little room and space to figure out what they want, that they can often figure that out. And that's a great story you told because he knew what he needed. And that's, again, sort of the how to be a good listener is not to ever start the sentence with, you need to, but to start the sentence with, what do you what do you imagine that you need at this point? To let that be open-ended and people kind of dig in and figure out what their own needs are. And I, I'm constantly surprised by sort of the creative ways folks come up uh, with how to take care of themselves
2: what rituals morning rituals do you find to be most helpful and again we we tend sometimes to want to minimalize rituals and certainly minimal minimalize mourning uh, because again it's uncomfortable it's painful it's difficult, uh, and and so we, we sort of sanitize those things in, in so many ways, but we also know that there are there are there are many cultures and many cultural practices, religious, uh, you know, societal, whatever, in which, you know, can there there are things that are done, and and experiences that are had that can be very helpful to people to acknowledge their grief, to acknowledge the pain, to allow them to, you know, find ways to, you know, to, 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 to be in it and to be accepted in it. So are there, are there, you know, examples that you can give of, of morning rituals that you, you find particularly healthy and helpful?
1: And I think that's that connects with our what we were recently you know what we were just describing about how do folks need to take care of themselves. If someone does not have a sort of preset uh, faith practice that provides them that, then I do have that conversation with many folks about the value of it and the understanding of it. and for some it's not for everyone. But I've seen folks, again, come up with many creative uh, uh, ways of really what it is, is honoring and remembering. And, f- and for myself, it's a simple thing, but I've taken the day off every year since my son died that was the anniversary of his death, and that is time for me to sit at the cemetery and reflect and think and ponder these years that have happened and, um, you know, think of all the stories that have happened that he missed and uh, all the stories that I have uh, with his short life with us. And I I hold that time very, very sacred. I see folks, you know, do simple things like, um, you know, always have uh, an empty chair at at holiday meals, which doesn't just represent one person, but all the people that they have loved and lost. Light a candle uh, on particular times, particular days. Uh, When you think about a ritual, it's sort of bringing our, our busyness into a focus again, to remember and to honor. I've had folks do much more elaborate things uh, on the anniversaries or on birthdays as well. Uh, It's a room for lots of creativity. I think once folks do it, it's something that they want to uh, continue to do. Um, I see folks that gather with a certain members of their family and or friends that we're friends of, and they just do storytelling. That's a ritual. It's a, uh, you know, we have kind of gone through a period in our time, to, again, depending on your faith practice, where we're fairly ritual-less, and I think we've lost a lot in that. So it's something I encourage folks to do and, and to be creative about it, um, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, again, a very specific action uh, to a donation that they make to the same place every year. Just anything that makes that helps you with that connection and um uh it's i think it's a piece of our culture that's gotten lost that it's it's time to bring that back it's the same word we've been using in our conversation which is giving the permission that it's okay to do that and you know if if what you did didn't quite meet what you need do it differently next time let's just be open with it but it's also stopping and pausing and remembering and that's what i think is so crucial
2: yeah we believe that too tom had mention a story of a woman who had lost her son when we first met her at 14 years before. And she was still very much grieving the pain of his loss, especially because it was during the holiday season. And when we met her, it was approaching the holiday season. And she, you know, first statement to us was, I don't like the holidays. Um, and, And, you know, when we we asked her why, and, we, and then we found out. And we found out the date of her son's passing 14 years earlier, and it was December 16th. And this was a few weeks before December 16th. And, and so we decided, well, we, we actually invited uh, her to meet her in a coffee shop that upcoming December 16th because we thought it might be a good day for her to to remember and talk about her son and uh, his life. And she readily accepted that. And she came into the coffee shop where we were meeting. There were Christmas lights and Christmas music playing in the background and you know, here in the midst of a season that she really struggled with because of her loss. And she was carrying a bag. And she reached into the bag when she sat down and she said, would you like to see pictures of my son? And she had notebooks, binders, full of pictures, from picture of shortly after his birth to one that was taken, he was 19 years old, the the one that was taken just uh, weeks before his death. And we sat there for well over an hour that day, and allowed her to flip through those binders and tell us what each of those pictures meant as she went through his life chronologically and every year since then now it's probably been five years every year we have either met with her on that day on december 16th or we have um certainly reached out to her and sent a message to her, uh, if, if, if we weren't able to, to get through, I think last year we, we, we asked her about that day and she was actually going to be out of town and she couldn't do it. So we, we, but we remembered and sent her a message, which she wrote back to us that she appreciated so much because, you know, one of the things that she said that after, after 14 years, when we first met her, she said, people don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hear about my grief. They don't want to hear about my son. Many of them don't even, didn't even know him. And, and they can't understand why I'm not over it, as you know, you talked about before with so many people say that, and uh, that's shaming. And, but we realized that it was just so important uh, for her when, you know, it seemed like so many people had, were not interested to give her that space on that day in particular to um, know, let her know that someone was interested and someone did care about what she was going through.
1: Beautiful story. Yeah, I mean, you can hear the, is- the isolation in that for her. And because what, what you're describing is she not only, I think what I'm hearing is that she not only had, uh, as folks do, if their loss is within even 30 days of the major holidays, you have this collision of what's supposed to be celebration, sitting right next to deep sorrow, and and what you what you did and what you described that happened for her is that she had a safe place again to connect with that and was able to come out of her isolation. Because my guess is she, as she was saying, it's not only a hard time of year, but she's isolated in that time of year. And there is nowhere for that to go. So what, what a beautiful thing to do and to continue to do. And what a great example of how we can be a friend to those who mourn. It's creating time, space, as we've been saying, the kind of listening that doesn't guide or direct, but it receives and bears witness to whatever that story might be. Yeah,
2: well, three years ago, both my parents passed away within five months of one another. And um, shortly, uh, several months after my father, who had passed last, um, died, uh, Tom and I had some work. Uh, We were flown to Portland, Oregon, uh, to do some work. And it so happens that uh, the work we were doing there, it was was very coincidental and and wonderful that each of us have brothers who uh, live in Portland. So we were able to go there not only to do the work that we were doing, but to, to spend some time uh, with our brothers. and uh, we stayed with we happened to stay with my brother who uh, his family has a, an Airbnb and so that was that was very convenient and, and free, which was nice. <laughs> and but I took with me with us a suitcase that was my parents. My parents uh, love to travel. They had never been to Portland. My brother had just moved there a, about a year or two previous uh, to, their, to their passing, and they hadn't gotten the chance to, to be there yet. And I remember before my mother died, one of the things that she said uh, to me and to my sisters uh, as we were standing around her bed in the hospital, that um, she said, I guess I'll never go get to see where our brother's name was Steve lived in Portland. So I kind of inherited um, th- th- their suitcase, the, the one that they-, they used most to travel with. And I made, so I packed my clothes um, in that suitcase and I took it to Portland so that there was something of theirs uh, that was able to get to Portland. And it was something so for my brother too. Uh, to be able to, to to just to be in his home that that our parents' suitcase was there and that was just one of this sm- a small thing, but something that that I found to be very comforting and very and very helpful was one way to honor my parents and remember, um, you know, and and help them in spirit
1: at least to to have visited Portland. Um, yep, there's there's a the moment of connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: One of the things that
0: you referenced earlier is that we we do live in this American culture where we're taught to kind of muscle through our pain. We also find that we're in a culture that values positivity and message, or messages around positivity, which I know you reference in your book. We we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because we think it's important that people are given permission again to express all the human emotions. So it is grieving. It's, it's loss, it's fear, it's loneliness. Sometimes it can be joy and we hope there's some, some of that too. But, um, yeah. What, what about this culture that we live in right now?
1: Well, it's the, history of this culture, uh, as I say in the book, the culture of positivity, uh, is really, I think quite fascinating. I, I Borrowed much out of Barbara uh, Aaron Wright's book um, called Bright Sighted How uh, the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. That's quite a bold title. <laughs> and, and she traces this back to, I think, the mid 1800s uh, in the faith healing movement, that if you have a, diff- a certain attitude, Uh, about your illness, it will make you well. And then she kind of goes all the way through, um, you know, some of the other, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and others that have promoted that message. And then she goes section by section in various uh, sort of dimensions of American culture from psychology to healthcare to business and uh, looks at how uh, the sort of the downside, if you will, of positive thinking when it's promoted in such a way that there's no room for someone's reality. And somehow, it's fascinating how she stumbled into this. She was a, a cancer patient and went on some online sites to sort of, uh, breast cancer patient to sort of get connected with other women. But she would speak to her authentic truth of the pain and the suffering and the concern and the fear. And I'm shortening this, but I think kind of the way she described the response was she sort of booed off the stage, uh, basically saying, we don't really have room for that, at least on the sites that she was on. And that's what got her sort of curious about this whole notion of positive thinking. So, and she describes it, and it's interesting to think of it as sort of an original American religion, the religion of positivity. So let's flip this. It's not to say there's something inherently wrong with that, uh, with positivity. And as she says, she's up for, you know, sunny moments as the next person. But when it is um, stated as such a thing to comply to and you're being negative if you're not positive, there's not a lot of room in there for difficult emotions because it really does label emotions. And I'll have that language with folks who come to see me saying I'm, I'm really I'm just so negative, I'm sad all the time. And they've now, because they're not happy, which equals positive, they must be being negative because they're sad. And I think it's another thing that somewhat infiltrated our culture uh, as a, another vector where we were earlier, sort of another version of shame, that if you are not actually feeling very positive no matter what, then you're obviously feeling negative and nobody wants to be around that. So I see that as a, a um, dynamic in the folks that I work with because I think that culture is alive and well. And again, I don't want to make a case there's no good news in, in that. But I think what it's done is it's forced uh, hard emotions uh, underground. It's pushed it down because no one wants to be thought of as... Certainly no one wants to be thought of as a negative person and no one wants to be thought of as a not positive person. So it creates a disconnect with sometimes folks' true, authentic truth and emotion because it just doesn't comply with this sort of cultural expectation that no matter what our circumstances, we need to spin it into something that's positive.
0: Yeah, we find that to be so true and we're not sure if you've seen it, but there maybe this is just the world that I'm in right now with four small kids. but. We'd recommend it to really anybody to watch, but especially like counselors and therapists. It's the movie Inside Out. It's a children's movie that was uh, created maybe, I don't know, it's probably almost 10 years ago have, now. Yeah. But uh, just a powerful movie about this idea of how we in culture oftentimes have this high, extremely high view of joy, like joy is what we're all all reaching for, when in reality, joy is just another human emotion is the point that they're trying to make in the, in the movie. And, you know, it's on the same plane as fear and sadness and anger. And we just loved the way that they portrayed that in the movie because we think we should all look at the human emotions that way, that they're all... Important. They all serve a purpose, and rather than always shooting to, 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 you know, shooting for this this idea of joy, let's just kind of acknowledge that joy is just another one of the human emotions. It's it's a it's it's a it's a healthy one, but it also serves a purpose, just like fear serves a purpose and anger serves a purpose.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful movie, and it's interesting you bring that up. I was just uh, talking with my daughter in law that. Um, we, we're going to show that to our grandsons uh, very soon. We just both had remembered that movie. And, uh, and to give them that kind of emotional intelligence training early on that they can identify whatever they're feeling. We're here to love them no matter what that is. And if, if we don't make room for their suffering, even as little kids, then they're going to kind of be in the same spot so many folks are, at, are in where they develop this self-criticism if what they're feeling doesn't look acceptable um, in that kind of compliant, positive way, uh, it leaves us again with the only other option to say we're doing something wrong.
2: We'd like to take just a moment to thank our premier sponsor for the Someone to Tell It To podcast, The Wonders Found Thrift Shop in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are so grateful for their support, for their advocacy, for these messages that we share with you today and every day so thank you we also want to encourage you if you are interested in helping to support these podcasts you can do that yourself too by going to patreon.com and signing up and saying what you would like to do on a regular basis to help someone to tell it to continue these podcasts to help them grow and to reach more and more people around the world We love this quote uh, from the author uh, Anne Lamott. We wrote, uh, if you haven't already, you will lose someone you can't live without, and your heart will be badly broken, and you never completely get over the loss of a deeply beloved person. But this is also good news. The person lives forever in your broken heart that doesn't seal back up. And you come through and you learn to dance with the banged up heart. To you, what does it mean to learn to dance with a banged up heart?
1: Well, that's a great, great question. I love that quote. And I think what would be a a sort of broader way to answer that for me is how over so many evolutions and who I am um, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, to learn to be uh, comfortable with the both and, To learn that sadness and joy can sit next to each other. Sorrow and happiness can sit next to each other. And I think that's what she so eloquently said, is that this is not about never feeling joy again, but making room for both. Making room for our full human life experience, which is going to include all of those feelings and not labeling any one worse than another. And it's often a conversation that that I have in the therapy room here with folks who are in a sort of state of mind of sort of an either-or life that they've lived. So how can I feel joy and sadness? It's interesting you'll see folks uh, at certain parts of their process and their mourning start to have just a little sprinkle of, uh, of joy or a little sprinkle of lightheartedness. And it, it confuses them. It almost makes them feel disloyal as if, what am I doing here? Am I, am I stopping grieving the one I love because I had this? And that's the opportune moment for us to talk about how to make a both-and world, how to have that broken heart and dance at the same time, that both things can be true. One does not have to cancel out the other. And that's a lesson I kind of keep having to remind myself of uh, regularly Um, because it's it's so much easier to quantify and qualify it and say it, it can't only be one way, not two ways. But if we're unable to live in that space between both, between uh, the all the feelings that we have, then I, I think we really kind of get shut down and we're not fully available to our experience. Michael had referenced
0: earlier how we often are privileged to be invited into a sacred space of leading funerals for, for people. And maybe a couple years ago, we were invited into a funeral where we, um, there was a, a, a woman who had lost her son to an overdose unexpectedly and he was a young young man and it was a hard funeral was packed and we often think it's a success if we can make people kind of laugh sometimes in the midst of a funeral service and we remember this this mom got up and she spoke and there were lots and lots of tears as she shared her testimony and her interactions with her son And then her daughter got up and she just has this witty sense of humor. And she shared this humorous story about Bill Cosby, who at that time was right in the middle of the Bill Cosby scandal that, that has been publicized now in the last couple of years. And she was sharing a story about her mom when they would go on these long, long road trips that her mom would always say, well, we'll be there in two Bill Cosby episodes to wherever they were going. And so that was kind of a reference point for her kids. And then her, her daughter made a joke in the middle of this funeral service that at that time was right in the middle of the scandal with Bill Cosby, that he was a pervert is the word that she used in the middle of this funeral service. And of course, everybody started laughing. And then I remember I got up towards the end and I said, I'll be honest, uh, this is two pastors who've done a lot of funerals. And this is the first time we've ever heard the word pervert used in a funeral. <laughs> and of course the place just lost it. But yeah, we'd like for you just to talk a little bit about laughter. I mean, we really believe that laughter is medicine for all of us, and it is a way to rise above our situations. It's, it's, it's not just positivity either. It's, uh, it is a sense of joy and satisfaction. It's a, it's a way of remembrance. And so we would love for you just to talk a little bit about laughter and, and the role that that plays as well.
1: Well, I I take us back to the notion of community because I think that laughter comes in our connectivity. You know, when we, um, again, this amazing uh, information we have now that we haven't always had about how we're wired to connect with each other. And so the the laughter certainly can be laughter uh, alone. But when laughter is shared, there's a sense of bonding and connecting, and it is absolutely therapeutic. You know, it releases a different chemistry. And, and, uh, and it's in contrast, if you will, to some of the stress hormones that come about with grief. We don't often use that terminology, but I think it has some truth that grief is stressful. And when our bodies are stressed, there is adrenaline and cortisol that are being released uh, because we're in a state of, of, of this stress because we can't find our loved one. We can't, we can't make them come back. And that's a very, very stressful time so it is the it is the both and to that that to be with folks when it's well-timed and well-placed and you can actually if you think about it, just like you were talking about at the at the funeral you just described if you sort of listen um what i used to call a wake or you know a visitation or everybody's at the house you can sort of feel waves of energy where there somebody will tell a story and that might be a story that engages some laughter, and then it kind of just, you know comes back down to a quietness and a solemnness, and maybe a little more whispering among ourselves, and then it comes back up. And I think even in an hour or two of being gathered after someone dies, if you listen closely to that, it really is a sort of a metaphor for what's to come, which is we're going to be in both of those places. We're going to hopefully be in places of memory that provide um, joy and happiness and laughter, we're going to be in this angst and anguish about the fact that uh, in this lifetime our, our relationship has, has been broken by death. But I do think there's a natural rhythm to it. Again, some folks feel almost disloyal when laughter comes because uh, it's as if they're kind of taking a position if I'm not mourning all the time that I'm being disloyal to my loved one. And that's something we talk about, again, as I mentioned earlier, that it is okay to make room for that. But absolutely, it's, it's, it's like many things, again, I keep coming back to this, we understand the science behind laughter and what it actually is releasing in our brains, which is somewhat of a counterbalance to some of the stress hormones that we deal with when we're grieving.
0: It's like exercising.
1: <clears throat> exactly.
2: Yeah. A few years ago, we um, were invited to uh, meet with a men's cancer support group probably a dozen dozen or so men who many of whom had prostate cancer but not all of them and i think a question was asked about something they've never told anyone else before is there anything that you've you know through this journey that you've never shared before and there was some awkward silence as as men tried to figure out well you know maybe what that might be but then is it safe enough? Can I, can I share whatever it may, it may be. But without too long, without too much time, one, one man spoke up and he said, well, um, I just need to say you know, and this is something that's very common and they, he hadn't talked about it before, uh, to, with the group, um, or anyone else is that, you know, as a cancer, as a prostate cancer patient, he had lost, um, you know he was impotent and it was the first time he had said that out loud and especially to this group and he he was grieving the loss of his sexual ability he was not a man who was he was actually younger than than many many of the of the men who were in that group and he talked about that, and it's very poignantly how it's something that um, he probably he may know, you know, may no longer ever be able to experience uh, because of because of this cancer and what he had lost. And we we share that um, because, and you you alluded to this earlier, and we we just wanted to talk about it a little bit that that grief isn't just about the loss of a person. It can be the loss, about the loss of so many other things in our lives. In this case, the loss, the loss of health, the loss of an ability to do something that that someone in, has enjoyed for much of his life. You know, it's the loss of a job. It's, you know, the loss of uh, of, of, of a home, for example, or, or, or a relationship that, that you know, a person's still alive, but relationship is ended. It could be the, the loss of you know self worth or, or dignity or just so many other things that loss that that that, that comes that, that loss is about and we grieve those things as well. So how do we how do we address those things and 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 honor the fact that that loss is more than just the the ending of a person's life, but it's about the ending of things in a person's life that also can cause great pain. And and the fact is that that you know, in some of our um in, in some religious funeral liturgies, one of the things that's part of the part of the liturgy is that in the midst of life we are in death. And we believe that that, 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 that is true that there is loss and death around us all the time it might not always be a physical death but of so many of these other things so how do you, how would you respond to that and how do we help the world know that that this kind of loss is is so significant and needs to be honored too
1: well that's a great question and you know I, I'm I'm going to go back in time to when I sort of, as I mentioned earlier, sort of pulled out of uh, the usual order of how I was doing things and started to think about and explore the notion of attachment. And, you know, what began to occur to me, uh, not immediately, but over time, is there are an indefinite number of things we can attach to. And whatever we are, t- are attached to, we are at a point in our life sometimes where that must be what we grieve we can be attached to our health we can be attached obviously to our living relationships we can be attached to our things we can be attached to our identity um so
0: we love how you set it up in your book you use the example from the movie castaway yes
1: right right yeah we we use that as a great illustration of on a on a tropical island there was an attachment to the volleyball you know, that, and, and naming him and talking with him. So it, I think, to answer your question, I think there is, again, freedom and permission to understand that if you have attached, you get to grieve, whatever that might be, because it's confusing. And a lot of folks, I think, um, conscientiously kind of say, well, you know, it's not like it was, and then they'll fill in the blank with kind of the worst tragedy that ever happened. Uh, people do a lot of what I call comparative grief, that I don't really get to grieve this because think about others who are grieving that. And that's compassionate and that's understanding, but I think that's a minimizing statement. If you're attached to, for instance, the story you just told, you're attached to your sexuality, of course you are. That ends up being something that you grieve. And so it's another kind of a um, permission giving and awareness to help explain to people, why am I feeling this way about that? And I'll have folks in all sorts of circumstances similar to what you're describing. And it does almost immediately, many times, it will make sense. I said, if you're attached, you're grieving. It doesn't matter that it wasn't this or that. If you were attached, that's your unique attachment to, be it an object, be it a person, be it your health, be it an identity. And I think that creates a lot of openness to say, ah, okay. So that that I get to grieve, and then you do that, and and some of the challenge with living loss is that it's it's a perpetual thing that you you have to sometimes uh, almost grieve regularly, daily, because it's an ongo- Sometimes these are ongoing events, and um, I th- I think that it, that that would be my answer is that the more we understand attachment, the more we understand how many things we may grieve.
0: So you've had such a transformational journey uh, both personally and professionally as we all have and and we'd like you to talk a little bit about how sharing your own vulnerability which is probably uncommon in a lot of the therapy counseling world which is important to us too because we like to be vulnerable ourselves how has that been helpful in connecting with others
1: Well, that's again another great question it's been and i don't know why i didn't think ahead on this uh, as it turned out to be it makes perfect sense you know there's many many folks i see in my work who uh, had no idea that i had uh, the loss that i had until the book came out and it wasn't necessarily even that i you know was sitting here selling the book at the office. I don't do that. But they would read a story in the newspaper. They would hear podcasts like this. And they'd come into the office. And um, it was really such a, uh, for many, they just couldn't, well, let me say it this way. There were several who just couldn't talk about it. They were heartbroken for me. Because we have a, a, you know, a very defined intimacy and it's, a, and it's in many ways a one-way intimacy but they were able to see that I had a human experience that they didn't know about and there were many who wanted to know more and there were many who um, understandably could just touch it but they, they didn't want anything to shift in terms of their own work and so we would just touch it and I would acknowledge it. So it for this many years later for my story to get as public as as it is has been very, it um, has been very vulnerable for that to be out. It's been something uh, that you know my wife and I have had to talk about a lot because it was uh, me taking our story out into the public uh, in ways that would have never happened otherwise. So it's been frightening at times. It's been very uh, lovely at times. It's been very intimate at times, and um, it's certainly. You know, at this late stage in my career and life, uh, to be able to talk about that after so many decades of it really being fairly silent uh, has been something I'm very grateful for. But it has, I think, changed, um, you know, folks, kind of funny about their therapist, they want them to be just just enough human, uh, but and rightfully so, don't want to know everything. But I've not had any unpleasant responses about it. Everybody's been very gracious about it. And it feels like, um, with always the focus being on them, not me, that we've kind of reached a new level of connection.
0: Did you experience any? Um, we've used the term, and we've kind of coined this ourselves. I'm sure somebody else has used it too, but vulnerability, remorse. Um, you know, I'm putting this out there for others to read, especially as a man, which is not always common. We a few episodes ago, we had a school psychologist on. Our program, and we talked extensively about this topic of vulnerability, remorse, and and the shame around that. Even at times, did you experience any of that?
1: Yeah, I, I did. And uh, let's—I'll go back to our friend Tim, who you know was so vulnerable in his Mister Rogers book. And he and I spent a lot of time talking about this and the impact it would have on us and our families. And, um, you know, there were points I just thought this is too much. I can't do it even before we finish the book. But, you know, he would talk me through it. And, and you know, what he would keep coming back to is this is a truth about you that others will benefit knowing. We're on a mission here for this to happen. And he would try to bring me back to what our purpose was. Uh, but absolutely, that's I hadn't used those words like you did. But, yeah, I had some of that for sure and uh still do you know at moments because i'm allowing myself my most one of my most obviously intimate sacred experiences to be have a a light shown on it and have people respond to it and have public response to it and um, there are times where i just am so grateful that it's reaching others and there's times where i I even go back and say "I, i wonder if i should have done this because this was really a as a fairly private fella uh, this was this, this changed that privacy a great deal, but I'm real grateful for Tim because you know he had a similar circumstance you know when you look back at his book and how much he opened up about what was going on in his family that's
0: actually how we initially were drawn to him i mean that he that early on in the birth of someone to tell to, we just started getting all of these books just kind of uh, handed off to us, and that was a book Michael had previously read, but then he encouraged both of us to read it together. And from the first time we read it, we just were captivated by his level of openness and hence why we reached out to him because we were really proud of him, no pun intended for the way that he put it, his story out there and encouraged us to do the same and, and now we're, and this movement continues. Uh, which you're a part of, is just in- continuing to encourage people to kind of come out of hiding.
1: Yeah, it takes some, you know, I, it took. I, I guess I didn't know how much courage it was going to take because I didn't know what the responses were going to be. But once it started happening, again, what kept me coming back to kind of recenter on that was to know that there was purpose behind this. And, and then, you know, I might have that kind of remorse, and then the next day I get a lovely letter and think all right this this is why we did this um somebody has been touched by what we did and and they have room now to be with with where they are in that and um you know it's that one one letter that one day might just say all right that we did what we needed to do i'm glad we did it uh but yeah it's it's a it's something i hadn't really prepared myself for
2: we want as we as we prepare to, to close we want to uh Uh, Read this quote. It's uh, by the blogger Tim Lawrence, who who wrote that grief really is love weeping. And when he asked the question, well, why should I continue to love when doing so leads to such great pain? We've loved your response. We think it's so true. We think it's so profound. We think it's so important for everyone to hear that to love, you said, is to risk pain. But the alternative is to live in loneliness and isolation. Would you like to say more about that?
1: It's a, um, a, 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 an experience. I remember when our second son, uh, was born about three years after Ryan died and looking at him in the bassinet and not just, uh, I mean I was flooded with joy. We were concerned he might have medical problems and he didn't and everything looked fine. But I remember the willfulness at that moment of saying to him and saying to myself that I am i am going to love you. I'm going to take this risk again. And it, it wasn't I think because of what I've been through with our loss. It didn't just automatically happen. Uh, but because I was aware of what risk I was taking. But I knew I could not take any other risk. And I can think about that with my third son, and I can think about that with my grandsons, and with so many people I love, that it is that risk. But I cannot abide the alternative, which is to not be in a relationship. And I do see many, many folks who just say, I can't do it anymore. I cannot love anymore. I have none left. And we sit with that and we talk about that and we measure what the risk would be. And almost always they transform into into saying, I, I, but I can't live in this isolation either. And so it is a great dilemma for those who of us who have uh, loved and who have lost those we love to continue the intent of loving and, the, and taking that risk. But I, I think a world with that without that and the alternative is just not bearable even as hard as it is to take that step and to risk loving yet again we think of the poet maya angelo
0: another person that we love and quote all the time and she would often say just that we all have to trust and love one more time and one more time and one more time and she's somebody who experienced a tremendous amount of pain and and loss in her own life and so uh, for somebody like that to say such profound words, we should probably listen up. We uh, we want to end today by one of our board members actually listens to all of our podcast episodes, which we appreciate anybody who listens, but especially him. And he encouraged us to start giving some tips at the end of our episodes, and we'd like to do that today. Um and here's what we're we're thinking we'll do is we're going to give a couple t- tips uh for listening to others in grief and then we'd like you to you to add any to the list if you'd like to do that. Does that okay. sound like a plan? Absolutely. Okay, so we have 3 here. So first, first tip for listening to others in grief. Let the grieving person guide the conversation, but don't be shy about asking questions about the loss they have experienced and don't be afraid to use the person's name. Second tip, people love to tell stories and to share memories. Give people permission to tell stories, both serious and humorous and everything in between. Show you care by listening intentionally and seeming interested in those stories, but don't force them. If they don't feel like telling a story at that moment, that's okay too. Try to meet others where they are emotionally. And then lastly, number three, you can't be the one to guide someone else's grief journey. So give yourself permission to let the person grieve as they need to. You can't speed up the process of healing and you shouldn't try to. That's not your duty.
1: All well said, I think that's exactly, um, in the category of tips. Absolutely. If, if there's anything I would add to it, it would be to do those things you mentioned over time, longer than you think the other person might need it. Let them tell you if if they need less. But this is where I think there's often a surge of support and caring that uh, tends to start to wane after four to six weeks. And it is at that point, I think, um, that it's so important. There's you know, we look at the, the clichés, which I have a list in the book of what not to say, and um, there's a, this notion that time heals is such a tricky one because, um, in fact, if I get to it, I'm going to write a, my next blog on, the, on what I call the second year, because there's a, an assumption that the time heals, that it's a direct relationship between time and feeling better and that is often not true, and if we're, if you've been through losses, you know that to be true, and so it's so important, I think, to do those very things you said, or what Alan Wolfelt so beautifully calls companioning, that we are companioning those who are the bereaved, but be, be open to doing it longer than you think it might be needed, because sometimes that second year, is not further towards feeling better and healing. It feels longer from when I've seen my loved one. And there's a whole other kind of experience that's happening as it sort of settles into the reality of it. So my tip would be go long on this. Uh, Do something past when the last casserole dish is picked up. Make yourself a note to make that contact once a month, uh, indefinitely, and certainly on anniversaries and holidays. Um, Be intentional, show up create space and time and then do exactly as you just described in terms of how to relate to those who mourn
0: well Patrick this has been remarkable what a what an experience for us and anybody who's a dear friend of Tim Madigan is a dear dear friend of ours too and so we uh, consider you now one of our dear friends so thank you
1: well likewise I'm so grateful we got to, to meet and, and to visit we've been uh, looking to do this for a while and I'm just uh, so grateful we had the chance to do it
2: we are grateful to Patrick O'Malley we thank you so much for all that you shared this this topic is so important it's one that touches everyone's life and it's one in which all of us can learn and grow and understand more with each day of our lives and you help us to do that and for that we're very grateful so thank you
1: you're welcome very much
0: just yeah. lastly uh, Patrick, how, how could people get in touch with, with your work to learn more and to learn more about your book?
1: Um, the book is available at any of your favorite booksellers. Uh, I have a blog site that is drpatrickomalley.com, and um, I, I'm intermittent with that, but there's uh, several archived blogs, and uh, I get two compliments about the blog. One is the content, and the other is how short it is. So there seems to be, there seems to be. <laughs> <laughs> we struggle with that all the
0: time as writers. Yeah,
1: and so it's, it's rarely more than three or four paragraphs. So uh, they're quick to read. But as things come to mind, and, and I'm, as you all are, I mean, I'm, I, it's, we can take the position of expert, but truth is I'm learning stuff every day about this that I didn't know yesterday. And so as those things happen, and as I'm in this incredible sacred intimate space with those who mourn, and I try and convert that to words that may be useful for other folks who are, who are having the same experience. And that, and you know, we just go to the heart of what we're talking about here. It's how do we acknowledge those? Um, I had this quote sitting here, I'll just say it if I can say it real quick, that we used by Isaac Dennison, which says, all sorrow can be born if you put them in a story or tell a story about them. And um, I just I just think that is, that is the essence of what you all are doing and what I'm doing. And um, I would be grateful for anybody who wants to look at the book and who wants to get on the um, blog site. You'll get that in your email box when I when I write those. And I hope it's useful and touches folks.
0: Thank you again for tuning in today to the second part of this interview with Dr. Patrick O'Malley. If you listened to parts one and two, we offer double thanks for your willingness to learn more about how grief works and how complex it is.
2: And if you'll remember, at the end of this episode, we shared a few tips. We hope that they can help all of us as we journey into grief, whether it's in our own personal lives or in the lives of those we know and love and care about. Grief, as Patrick reminds us, really is universal. None of us escapes its entrance into our lives.
0: So we're so grateful for you joining in with us this interview. It is, in our minds, an extremely important and valuable one. Grief is an experience that we humans are inclined
2: to want to avoid, but ultimately, we just can't. But the thing is, if we can enter into grief, we believe with greater understanding and with the ability to face it without judgments, both on ourselves and on other people, we might just be able to enter into it in a way that helps us to grow. Mm -hmm. So once again, we thank you until we listen again.